continue our series in the in that book. At the heart of this passage that we're looking at in chapter 10 today, we have the testimony of Jesus that he has come to do what God requires for man's salvation. He has come to fulfill the will of God that was what God required for salvation. This is the passage that specifically refers back to Psalm 40, which we have been singing every week as our song of focus in this part of Hebrews, starting from 8-7, and we'll continue on until we get to 10-18, singing this, uh, the first part of Psalm 40, where it talks about really what is right quoted in this passage that we're looking at today. So we're looking here at Jesus' testimony about and how it applies to us. His testimony that he came here for our salvation, committed to do all things that were required. That's his testimony, and that should give us great confidence. That's the overall idea of what we're looking at today. Next week, we'll plan to look at the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus and his saving work and with the blessings that that brings to us. So here, I'll read the passage to you today. The one we're looking at, it's the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1. And it is the holy and infallible word of God that I read to you. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, Make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remainder, I mean, sorry, a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin, all the different kinds of offerings you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There we end the reading of God's holy and infallible word. And God add his blessing to this reading and to the exposition hearing this word applied and, and what, it, what it means. We see first here that in the first four verses of Hebrews 10, kind of a, a review here of what we've been looking at. I mean, we even looked at these verses a bit last week too. But we're once again reminded that the law's purpose was to foreshadow Jesus Christ. And it's very important to understand that so you can understand the Old Testament when you read the scriptures, and you should be reading the Old Testament because, again, it's a pattern of what Jesus did. We learn about Christ as we study in the Old Testament scriptures. You see how the chapter opens with the words, the law having a shadow 
of the good things to come. Now, as we have been seeing in this part of Hebrews, the law refers in particular to everything that Moses gave the people when they came out of Egypt from God, the law that was established at that time. God had gathered this nation, Israel, out of Egypt to himself and declared that he would be their God, they would be his people, that he would give them a land where they could live for him as a pattern with the pattern of what he was going to do to save the world. And he told them that they would bring forth the son that would be the savior of the world. He told them that from way back, from back to the time of Abraham, that they as a people were the ones, Abraham's descendants before they were even there, just Abraham and his wife, that the son would come from him that would bless all the families of the earth and bless Abraham and his family. So he promised to give them the land and he said he would protect them and provide for them in that land as long as they maintained that model that he had given them. So there was, there was a kind of a duty that they had. And if they didn't do that, he said, I'm going to cut you off and I'll drive you out, but I won't forsake you. The law was meant to be a foreshadowing, a model, a pattern of the relationship that God would establish with them and with sinners chosen from this world through no merit of their own to be his people. The law had several components. It had the Ten Commandments that they heard when they were gathered at Mount Sinai. They heard with trembling before a holy God because it summarized the moral requirements of God, requirements that they knew that they had not met. And it terrified them as they stood before a holy God. In summary, those Ten Commandments tell us that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who has done that? It tells us that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who has done that? We are to be devoted to God as adoring worshipers. We are to obey him wholeheartedly. The people were shown clearly at Mount Sinai that they came short. They came short of the moral law and they were unfit to come near to God. God set up barriers and said, don't even touch the mountain or you'll die. It was a fearful thing. Even Moses, we're told, trembled before the majesty of God's holy, before God's holy majesty. It showed the obedience that was required of them and the obedience that the one who was to come, the son who was to come, would provide. Okay, he was the one that would fulfill those requirements of the moral law. The law also showed that because they were sinners, that they needed provision for their sin. The pattern was very, very clear, wasn't it? God showed them this by giving them a whole system of ceremonies and rituals foreshadowing Christ who was to come. He was foreshadowed by priests who were appointed to offer the sacrifices. And because these priests were sinful men, they had to have all kinds of baths, all kinds of washings and sprinklings with, with blood and water. And they had to make uh, sacrifices for themselves before they could even step forward and say, I'm a priest. They had to have a label on them that said holiness to the Lord because they weren't really holy. So they had to have a sign because they were representing all of that. And then they had to offer all kinds of sacrifices and oblations and things for, for the people's sins, for their own sins in the tabernacle that God had made. Jesus was foreshadowed by the offerings. So he was foreshadowed by them as priests and by the offerings who were, which were to be without spot and blemish. There had to be death 
bloodshed in the place of them because of sin. An atonement made. So these were offered to the people to show that God cannot accept them apart from the death of one to represent them. The building itself and all of its furnishings also representing Christ who with his people is a dwelling place for God. As he became in the flesh, then he was indwelt by the spirit also a dwelling place for God. And he brings his people into that temple, that tabernacle to be his dwelling place. At the heart of that dwelling place, what was at the heart of it? There was the Ark of the Covenant. And what was in the Ark? There were the Ten Commandments. Representing that at the heart of God's people is one who is holy and righteous, who keeps those commandments. Symbolically, it was written there because the people were not keeping them. Now we have one who is alive and who kept and keeps all of those commandments. The core of God's people is perfect obedience in our living mediator and representative and king. There was also the lampstand and such things as that because Christ is the light of the world. There was the bread because Christ is the bread that came down from heaven to feed us. We have fellowship with him. We have communion with him as members of his body so that there's light and life that comes through him, through his sacrifice. There was the altar of incense representing the prayers, the holy prayers that he offers up. They had to have incense in the pattern because their prayers didn't cut it. But he, we, now he is the one who brings those prayers and intercessions to God that are pleasing in his sight. The people could not see in all of those shadows just how it would all work out and how God was going to provide all of these things for them. They knew that these were just symbols of what he was going to do, just a pattern, just a copy of, of what was really needed. As we saw last week, he never could, could have dreamed what God actually did. The, the, the one, his son, would actually become one of us, become flesh. And then that God himself, God the son, would be the sacrifice. They couldn't even believe that when he told them, when he came here and he told them, I'm going to go to the cross. And he kept saying, what are you talking about? Messiah can't do that. You can't do that. And he did it. And then they had to reckon with it. They had to deal with it. They had to accept it and gloriously accept it. He did that. He actually did that. It, it was, it's astounding that, that this should be done. And when the shadows were there, yeah, God's going to take care of it. But what is, what is he going to offer for us? What is the offering? It's not about bulls and goats. That's just representative. How can there be something conscious, something, someone that knows what they've done, someone that is one of us and that's righteous and that makes an offering of atonement? Where can that come from? That's what we looked at last week. God had it all planned. And he laid it out beautifully to them in all those ordinances. And what a, what a confidence-inspiring sort of thing it is to see how he had all that planned out. And fulfilled it in a way that it was, it was a mystery to everyone. And now it's a mystery revealed. Because we see Christ is the one for Israel and for the nations. Until Christ came though, it was their responsibility. Israel's responsibility to maintain that model that God had given them. These people would be the ones that would bring forth the son of promise. And it was their job when he was brought forth to present him to the world. And they did, didn't they? Who went out preaching? It was the Jews. Not all of them, but it was those like Peter, James, and John, Paul, 
Different ones, they went out to the nations and they proclaimed the good news and the gospel spread. Until that time came, though, they were responsible to maintain this model that God had given them with all of these ceremonies and sacrifices. And they were to do it carefully. Because if they started moving things around and distorting things and adding things and taking things away, it would distort the picture that God had established. And then it would wreck everything for showing the model that God wanted to show when his son came. God told them that he would preserve them and protect them and prosper them if they obeyed him. If they kept the pattern. If they maintained the law that he had given them. God told them through Moses that you're not going to obey me. Like you're going to harden your hearts and I'm going to have to chasten you over and over again. And it's going to get so bad that I'm going to reject you. I'm going to destroy my house that you build. I'm going to destroy the city and I'm going to drive you out into exile. But he said, I will not forsake you because I'm still going to fulfill my plan. I'm still going to bring forth what is shown in this pattern that I gave you regardless of what you've done. And so God called them back, didn't he? He he brought them back again. They built the temple again and prepared for Christ to come. And they were the ones that brought forth Christ, just as he said it would be. So you see that the law was a shadow of what? The good things to come. Christ and what he was going to do. The good things to come. That he would be a priest. That he would have an acceptable offering for our sin. As well as a righteousness for the, to be the dwelling place of God. But here in Hebrews we're again told that the law itself was not the way of salvation. It would be a terrible mistake, wouldn't it, to think that the way of salvation was by these these priests that are like washed up and put signs on them and stuff to represent something else. And these animals, bulls and goats that are offered, that that this is the way of salvation and this this building, you got to go to this building and do all. No, 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 that that was a pattern. It was a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of them, not the very essence of what was required, speaks of that which... The, the, image, the, the very image speaks of the things that were actually called for to take away our sin and reconcile us to God. You can see how it's stressed that the law can't do what needs to be done to make sinners right with God. Verse 1, it says that it can never, see that? Never with those same sacrifices which they offer continually make those who approach perfect. By those who approach, who's it talking about? It's talking about all the people. Because the sacrifice here is talking about the annual sacrifice, which was offered for the whole nation of Israel. It's saying, okay, every year these things are offered, and they, they can't make them righteous this year. They can't make them righteous next year. They can do the same offering again and again and again. That's not the point of those offerings. To make them perfect means to provide what God requires to make them who are sinners right with a holy God who dwells in heaven, acceptable to come before him and live. The law only showed what was required People still had to stand outside, even in the copy at that time. There was still a veil. The priest could only go in once a year to the holy place. It could, the holy of holies. It could not provide what was required because that was not its job. That was not the job of the shadows. They were shadows. The law was not sufficient and, and that it was the only pattern that it was only a pattern is demonstrated by the fact that the sacrifices were offered repeatedly. The arguments given that if the offerings had actually worked, if that had been their job to make people righteous, 
Once they were offered, you'd never have to do them again, would you? Because people would be made righteous by them. Why would you do it again? If you go to the doctor and you get cured, you don't keep going to the doctor. Say, oh, I have an appointment. I've been going every week. Well, you got cured. Why are you still going? Oh. Well, once the sacrifice is offered, it actually atones for sin. Do you offer another one? Why? This is brought out in verse 2 and 3. It says, for then, if the offerings made the people perfect, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Because they couldn't, they couldn't take away the sin, so they just reminded the people of the sin. You need to have a sacrifice. That, that was the purpose of them. You need Christ. You need what God has promised. You need the son that he has promised. You need him to come and take away your sins. And again, they didn't understand. They couldn't fathom that he would come and actually be the one that died. Even though the, there's prophecies that indicated that. Verse 4 stresses that the issue is not, though, with the failure of those sacrifices to, to be able to make us perfect. It was not uh, due to the people's failure to maintain the ceremonies. I mean, they did fail, and God rebuked them for that. But that was not the problem that's addressed here of why they couldn't take away our sins. The sacrifices were not suitable to do that. They were never intended to do that. That's why they couldn't. Verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. How could the blood of bulls and goats represent a human being before a holy God? They, they can't. This was never God's intention in instituting them. They were meant to be a pattern. But why is this inadequacy of the shadows stressed so much in the book of Hebrews? You wonder about that. I mean, you say, you've been kind of repetitious here. Well, yeah, it's, it, 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 it is repetitious in this section. It keeps talking about this. These sacrifices are just shadows. They're not sufficient. They're not sufficient. It's a, it's a beautiful truth to learn of these shadows and see how they work. But why is it stressed so much? It's stressed because these Hebrews that are being right, written to, the Jewish people who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah and had professed him, they... Um, they were showing an inclination to cling to their old ancestral testimony, ceremonies. To go back to all the temple stuff. All those ordinances and sacrifices. Even though Jesus fulfilled them. And God allowed that for a time. Because when they first came, they kept on doing their old worship. And then they also would gather to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he had done and would tell other people about that. There was a transition time in which they continued the old ceremonies because they hadn't realized that the old ceremonies were, were gone now. They were, they, were, they were fading away. And there was a period of time, you know, you have Paul going up to the temple and doing a vow and different things like that. It, 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 the time, but now when Hebrews is written, it's time to stop that stuff, guys. You know, we, we need to understand now. This, that stuff doesn't keep going now. No doubt the temptation to cling to ceremonies for these Hebrew Christians was partly fueled by their family connections, the feast days. You know, you think about we have a pattern of times when we have holidays, we get together with our family, and we have memories, and all of these things. There was, the, um, there was also the glory of the temple with all of its magnificent furnishings and the priests, and it was the glory of the... Of, of the world. I mean, people would come there to look at this temple on the hill and this was, their, this was their glory and their honor, you know, as a people. 
And to go away from that, you know, they're meeting now, listening to, you know, kind of like this, listen to some guy talking about stuff. Now they gather in someone's courtyard to hear the gospel preached and to sing praises. But all of those glorious symbols and stuff were, were not a part of it. There is, it seems, an even deeper reason. That was part of the reason they were tempted to go back. But there is, it seems, an even deeper reason in people and also in God's people that causes them to gravitate to shadows and ceremonies. Why do we see that all the time? Why do people gravitate to shadows and ceremonies? I say that there is this because we not only want to retain them the way these Jews did. They'd had them all their life and they wanted to keep doing them. They had a temptation that way. But also because we even invent them as God's people. We even make up shadows and ceremonies and add them into our worship. Why would we do that? I mean, even the Jews with all their ceremonies that they had in the old covenant, they added even more. They, 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 they multiplied them. They added special washings and stuff that God never even appointed. Why? Didn't you have enough ceremonies, guys? I mean, you were loaded with ceremonies. And now you've got all this other stuff and you start piling it on. And God's constantly telling them, only do what I commanded you. Only do what I commanded you. Don't set up high places for additional sacrifices. Don't do all these extra washing. He keeps going back, going back, going back. And they keep on doing it. They just can't get away from it. So what is going on here? Well, we're drawn to these ceremonies, I believe, because of our faith in God's saving work in Christ is weak. It's very hard for us to come before God on the basis of Christ alone. We got to have something to hide behind a little bit. Just, just to shelter us a little bit. Because we don't think Christ is enough. We don't have strong faith. We are not trusting in him. He is the son of God who died for sins. And who intercedes for us at God's right hand. And we want a bit more distance. He brings me too close. He brings me too close to God. And I'm not sure if he really took care of everything. We know that we're sinners. When ourselves are not fit to come before God. So give me some shadows. Give me some protection. Give me some distance. I submit to you that instead of fleeing to the shadows, you need to go to Christ in your insecurity. You need to go to Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. Then you will have the rest that God wants you to have instead of an artificial rest in man-made ceremonies that can never really give you the rest that you need. Doesn't this explain much about people today and how they behave toward the gospel? Throughout the history of the church, there has been this attraction to multiply ceremonies and symbols as it was in the old covenant. They, we want to have more and more and more to add saints to stand between us and God. Because I'm uncomfortable to come right to him. To have all kinds of different washings to take care of this and that. That are added to the simple washing of baptism as an initiation when we first come. To transform the Lord's Supper into a repetitious sacrifice. Where there's an offering for sin again and again. Because we don't have confidence in the one offering that was done 2,000 years ago. The Lord's Supper is not supposed to be a, a re-sacrifice of Christ. 
This one time it says, over and over in Hebrews, once for all. As if he has not already made us perfect, you see. When it was appointed, the Lord's Supper was appointed to be a fellowship meal. Where we delight in our communion with him. That nourishes us. Not where we offer a sacrifice to take away our sins. He did that a long time ago. We rest in that sacrifice when we come to the Lord's Supper. We give thanks for that. We, we trust in him. But we're not offering it again. That's, that you're creating a disc. I'm still out here. And I've got to have this repetition every, every, every time I come to the Lord's table. No, you don't. That's not what it's about. That sacrifice, takes. Jesus takes care of it all. We trust in him. We rejoice in his finished work. Now, what about those outside of Christ? How do they behave toward the gospel? Those who don't profess him, who don't come to him. Well, they turn to idols. They use their own imaginations to decide how to cope with a God who, before whom they are sinners. To distance, to create a distance from him in their minds so that they can be more comfortable. Some of them make him impersonal. You have religions that spring up in the world where God is just a force. He's not really a judge. He doesn't care what you do. He's just a power that you can tap into that does things. Oh, I feel safer with that. Right? The power can be intimidating if it gets in the wrong hands, but it, that's better than having... Remember, remember the, the disciples um, when they were in the storm? And they were, they were so afraid. And then Jesus comes and he says, Peace be still and everything. It stops. And what does it say about that? They were even more afraid. Because here was one that was so powerful that was also personal. And you see, they were intimidated by that. It's okay if I just have this power that I can use, but if there's someone else that's in control of it, then that intimidates me. Okay, so uh, others make him weak. They make God into someone that's kind of vacillating and he can't really do all that he wants to do. He's not really sovereign. You can manipulate him, control him, that sort of thing. Others make him tolerant of sin. Oh, God doesn't, God doesn't care if I sin. I think about my Aunt Caroline when I told her that I had become a Christian. She was my great aunt and I wrote to her and told her how you know, I had trusted the Lord and I was encouraging her to, to consider these things. And she said, oh, you don't need to worry about me. She said, I know that God is love. And he won't judge anyone. What is she doing? She's taking comfort in, a, in something that is not a real place for comfort. She had peace in her, in her mind, but it wasn't a legitimate peace. She had to stand before the judgment of God unless she repented. And I don't have any indication that she did. She's not here anymore. It's very sad. They do these things, you see. All of these things I'm talking about because they know that God is a holy God and they're not fit to come before him. They're only fit for condemnation and judgment. They're right about that. But instead of coming to God through Christ, they walk in the light of their own sparks. They make up stuff. Some make him to be a God that can be manipulated or one of, the many, God, one of many gods that can be played off of each other the way children do with their parents, you know. They try to play them off of each other, and then they can get more control. We want to have a God like that. Multiple gods. Polytheism. Some turn to accusing God, and then claiming that he does not exist because they don't like the way he does things. Well, God, God can't be real because look at the mess that the world is in, and if he's really sovereign, he's, he's not a good God. You hear that all the time. They say, how could a good God allow suffering in the world? 
They don't pay attention to the fact that the Bible completely, is completely frank about the reasons for this. And completely unapologetic for it. The Bible doesn't pretend like it's not that way. It acknowledges, yeah, there's all kinds of trouble that God has sent in the world because of our sin. It states plainly that we are responsible for our sin and that the sorrows are God's holy and just response to our sin and that it's only going to get worse if we don't repent. And yes, God allowed that whole situation in the world because it is the way that he chose to manifest his glory. The Bible even tells us that. There's no pretending Romans 9 is very plain about such things. He chose to reveal himself through all of this, but he declares also that he is not the author of sin. He brought it about in history that sin was on us. We're the ones who rebelled against him. So we must beware of running to shadows clinging to shadows because we're uncomfortable with being brought so close to God or bringing up lies and evasions if we're unbelievers. These Hebrew Christians were drawn to shadows. The church throughout history has been drawn to shadows. And sinners outside the church avoid God even when they hear the gospel. The point is not that we can come to God because he doesn't care about sin. The point is that we can come to God because Jesus Christ has dealt with sin and we trust in him. Now let's turn now to look at Jesus' testimony about himself. Jesus testifies that he has done what God requires and that we can come to God by him. Brothers and sisters, this is where your confidence must lie. Here is the son of God testifying about what he did and what it does, what it means, what it was for. In verse 5, we're told that what is quoted from Psalm 40, right here in Hebrews, what's quoted, it's quoted from, it's quoting from Psalm 40, is his testimony. The testimony of the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is Jesus' testimony. He says, therefore, when he came into the world, he said. And what follows is a quotation that the Hebrew believers would have been quite familiar with in their Old Testament scriptures and the songs that they sang, Psalm 40, though written by David, it clearly speaks of Christ. David would never have claimed to be the one who came into the world to do God's will so that sacrifices were no longer necessary. Okay, the sacrifices, they, they're just the pattern. They don't really take care of this, but... I'm here, I'm going to take care of it, and then we won't have the sacrifice. David did not say that about himself. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ when he came into the world. David did not come into the world either. He was conceived in the world. Jesus was conceived, but he was already existing from eternity. He came into the world and was brought to the womb of the Virgin Mary where, he, where a body was prepared to him. What is meant by, then, when he came into the world? It's clear from the quote that that's what it's talking about, the incarnation. He left glory to come here and become flesh. It was at a time that it was at that time that he can be said to have spoken these words. In a way, he spoke these words from all eternity. The words don't even have to be spoken. This is what he did. But if you want to pen a time on it, when he came into the world, it was the incarnation. These words convey his purpose and intention. 
from before the foundation of the world of what he did when he came into the world. As we have seen before, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Remember that? Who has neither beginning of days or end of life. So he's the eternal God. No beginning, no ending. Who became a priest. Who became flesh. He is the eternal son of God who existed before he was conceived. And who left glory to come here. He is from everlasting. But he came here with purpose and resolve. Because this is his testimony... It carries a whole lot of weight. It is the testimony of the Son of God. The Son of God who knew why He came. And knew what He was going to do when He came. There can be no error about His intention. Or about His success in carrying it out. Now let's look more closely at that testimony itself about His coming. First, He testifies that God gave Him a body. Because the bodies of animals were not sufficient to take away sin. From the middle of verse 5. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Now here he himself declares to the Father what we have been seeing in Hebrews about sacrifices and offerings of the Old Covenant. And what is that? That the Father does not desire them or have pleasure in them is that which would take away our sin. There is, this is not, of course, an absolute statement. The father appointed these sacrifices and he delighted in them for the purpose for which they were given. The purpose for which they were appointed to set forth as a model and representation of the how sinners would be reconciled to him through his son. He delighted them in them and he declared his acceptance of them when they were done with sincerity and were used as they were appointed to be used. Sometimes he even caused his glory cloud to fill the temple like when they first established it and when they offered the sacrifices to show his pleasure with the model that they had set up. And uh, he sometimes would stop judgments when there was offerings or incense or things like that that were happening right then. They would intercede and with sacrifice and he would stop it. Neither should we think that the Lord is suggesting that the Father did not approve of the way that they were being offered. Now, that's true that they often perverted the way, but that's not what's being spoken of when it says he didn't have any pleasure in them. That was certainly the case as his strong rebukes show for their misuse of these things. But that's not what our Lord is speaking about here. Rather, what he speaks about is that the Father never appointed them or had pleasure in them for the purpose of bringing about eternal reconciliation with him. They brought about only ceremonial reconciliation. They were only shadows of the eternal reconciliation. Because as we have just been saying, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Never could. Because this is so, the Father has done something marvelous. Because those shadows could not do it, what has he done? Jesus says, but, you didn't have any pleasure in those, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, I just want to mention here rather briefly, it's a complicated thing here, but in Psalm 40, it says, but my ears you have opened or literally dug out instead of a body you have prepared. Uh, so what's the difference here? Well, this Psalm is simply employing synecdoche, a figure of speech where you use a part to represent the whole. What is an ear dug out by God? 
What does the ear do? It hears to obey. Okay, so if you have an ear dug out for God, you are someone, a whole person, not just your ears obey, all of you obey. The ear is used for the whole person. So when that's, the Hebrews use that kind of talk. We read it in Psalm 50, right? He said, my ears you have opened. You've dug out my ears and I did not rebel against what you call me to do. So that was a Hebrew thing to talk about. So what happens then? Okay, you translate it in Greek. You're talking to other people. When the Septuagint was, was translated, they looked at that and they said, okay, yeah, body you have prepared. The, the ear represents the whole body. And they laid that out and uh, they translated it that way. And then what, is, what happens in Hebrews? Referring to that psalm, they quote it the way it had been translated by the Jews before Christ came, a body you have prepared for me. And so then it's brought forward. Now, there's other ideas about how all that works. Some people see this related to the piercing of the ear when a servant was wholly given over to his master. And you know, there's all kinds of different things that are, are mentioned about this. And it is a difficult passage. But we need to understand that the thing that we need to be absolutely certain about is what is said in Hebrews is the same thing, essentially, that is said in Psalm 40. Because both are by, given by inspiration of God. But it's very interesting that we have that connection with the, the Greek translation that the Jews did of the Old Testament long before Christ came, where it uses this same translation, the same explanation, perhaps, of it. When you, see, when you do translations, sometimes you have to do that because you have some expression and you don't know it doesn't make any sense in another language if you translate it literally. So you kind of have to explain it. And that's kind of what's going on here. It's part of good translation. But uh, now it's not just a translation, is it? Because once it's put in by an apostle in the New Testament, it's part of the inspired word of God that we now translate. Okay, now let's, having that, now let's consider the contrast. Okay, so because these Old Testament sacrifices were not adequate, you prepared a body for me. The contrast testifies that the son with this body, with these obedient ears, this obedient body, is what the father does desire. You did not desire the sacrifices and offerings. But you prepared me, for me a body. And that's what you desire. We have already been told in Hebrews that Jesus the son had to be made like his brethren. He had to become flesh if he was going to represent us. He had to have a body like we do and a human spirit that could actually offer himself. The animals didn't know what they were doing when they were sacrificed. He knew what he was doing. Um, he had to bear shame. He had to bear the guilt of our sin as, a, as one of us. As the son of God from eternity, then he is a pure spirit and does not have a body at all, far less a human body. But now the father has provided him with one. Now he can represent the people that he came to save. Now he can perfectly obey the moral law as their king. Talking about when he came into the world. That's why I'm saying it in, in this way. Uh, now he can suffer and die for their sins as the priest and the offering. Now he can do what the father requires. What the father delights in to save sinners. Now I want you to see here the love of God the father. Because what is the father doing here? came to the world, a body you have prepared to. Why? To do your will. Your will for what? God's will for saving sinners. The Father desires to save sinners. Don't ever get that idea that, 
the son came to save us and the father was all, he didn't want it and then Christ had to convince him. No, we can present that way when Christ's interceding for sinners and that sort of thing. But the father, he was all in. Like he's the one that, he's the one that, prepared the body of Christ in order to, to, that he would have a human body that he could go and, and do this. Salvation is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What gracious things were done by the three persons for our salvation. When we don't accept the horrendous offense of sin, we ask why the Lord does not save everyone. But when we do accept it, the horrendous consequences of sin we marvel that he should save even one person I mean, we were obnoxious to God yet his love is sheen in that he would pardon his enemies who committed treason against him it's astonishing to see the father setting out to do this that the merit of our sin is seen by the sacrifice that was required to atone for it now let's look at the second part of the son's testimony when he came into the world second he testifies that he came to do God's will in verse 7, he says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do your will, O God. He expressed what his intention was. To, it was his intention to do what the sacrifices could not do, but showed needed to be done. He came to do God's will with reference to those offerings and sacrifices that could not carry out God's will to save sinners. It was the Father's will that the Son should be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was His will that Jesus should die in the place of sinners, that they might be pardoned through His suffering and death. And here we see that it was Jesus' will to do that will. Now, here we see the love and condescension of the Son to carry out the Father's purpose in this, to do His will in this matter when he had to bear shame for us. He is prepared to bear the shame and spitting and scoffing of sinners. He is prepared to take the pains of, of all of their sin. Eternal hell. He is prepared to suffer the torments of the cross. He did not get caught in a bad situation. He came with deliberation to go and do what he did on the cross. He didn't just get caught up by people that were trying to arrest him and then he ended up on the cross and then they said, well, let's make something of this. No, he came with deliberation to do that. You have every reason then to be confident in his gracious love and care. If he's willing to do this to save us, what is he not willing to do for us? If you come to him, is he going to turn you away? He did this for sinners. You come to him as a sinner. Is he going to say, no, no, no. The one that did all of that? No way. Notice how he inserts the fact that what he comes to do is what was written in God's book. There are so many prophetic oracles written centuries before we have in our Bibles that are fulfilled by his coming to do the will of God. There is this one, this Messiah that was spoken of again and again. He says, in the volume of the book, it was written of me. He was written about centuries before he came. And though there are oracles about his suffering and death, and though there are promises that God would provide a sacrifice to take away sin, as I've said already, no one could conceive of how that would be done until it was done, which makes it all the more verifiable. 
I mean, if God had this whole plan and he talked about it for years and years and years and nobody knew how it was going to really be done and he kept on talking about it in the same way and then he did it and we go, wow, I never could have expected that. His coming was no afterthought. It was written in the book. Our God was enacting his plan through all of those centuries that he might bring, that, that he might bring gloriously about, bring all things together in Christ. We're told in various places, as in Psalm 40, that when the Messiah comes, the sacrifices would end. Daniel has stuff like that about the sacrifices ending when the Messiah does his work. The reason is that because what they were there to do, like we said, was to reveal what Jesus was going to do. When he did it, now we have a better revelation of what Jesus did. We have the substance. We don't still do the, the ceremonies. We've got the real thing. So we rest in his finished work. So now, based on Jesus' testimony, the author of Hebrews declares that sacrifices are finished and that everything has been done for our salvation. This is declared in verses 8 and 9, also 10. Uh, I'll read 8 and 9 now. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The first what? The first that's taken away refers to the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. Now that Jesus has come, it's fulfilled its purpose. There is no reason to continue the model of the shadows when the Savior is here and has done what was required. By the second that is established... It refers, of course, to Jesus and the gospel. He, he has now done what God wanted, so the gospel is now established in place of the Old Testament worship. Moses is removed, and now we have a gospel good news to proclaim. That is what we do in our New Testament worship. There is a change that was, it is a change that was anticipated all along. Now, if only, if only, if only... God's people would fully recognize what Christ has done for them. If all of you would fully recognize what Christ has done for his people. By doing God's will, verse 10 says, we have been sanctified, set apart as pure, you might say. Set apart as holy to God. By doing God's will, verse 10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ, the body that the Father provided for him once for all. By this means, we have been fully reconciled to God, brought under his favor and acceptance, completely forgiven, justified, redeemed, restored. I am deeply concerned that some of you are not resting in Christ in his finished work. You're still laboring under the burden of sin and guilt. Perhaps part of the problem is that you have never really been convicted of your sin and the depth of it in such a way that you went to Christ for mercy because you've only looked at your sin in a superficial way. You don't really need a Savior for that because you've glossed over it and you've glossed over who God is and His holiness and that there's an eternal hell. You know, oh, I don't like to think about that. You need to think about that because it will actually lead to your comfort. Because the way that you have comfort is not by changing what is true. 
It's by fully embracing it and the provision that God has made. In other words, you're not actually looking to him for salvation. You've never received him and you're not resting in him. You're trying to deal with your sin and guilt your own way by avoiding the true God, by trying to live a better life maybe, or by making excuses or all of those things. Perhaps some of you even read the Bible and go to church and say your prayers as a way of trying to make things right with God. You're not making things right with God that way. And, and when you do, you see, when you do it that way, you, you grind away and you receive very little blessing and find very little comfort and very little joy in our Lord Jesus Christ. This uneasy relationship with God, this unsettled relationship with Him, it can make you frustrated and irritated so that you're always on edge and ready to blow up at people. It, it leaves you empty and unsatisfied so that you're drawn to all kinds of lusts and you can't stay away from them because you've got nothing that you can really go to and lean on. It can bring depression and anxiety because there's, things are going nowhere. Because it leaves you guilty, it can cause you to give yourself over to ritual religion and to go away from walking with the living God in union and fellowship and communion with Him. The traditions of man and religion aim at easing guilty consciences but with artificial success because the means are artificial, candles and all kinds of artificial ceremonies. It is to submit to a yoke of bondage because you have to keep doing those things. You have to say your Hail Marys and you have to go on and on and on and on. You have to have the washing and the purification. But people prefer that, you see. They prefer that to coming directly before the living God because they don't trust in the Savior that makes us right with the living God. And so they're uneasy and they gravitate to these things. There is no need for such an uneasy relationship with God. There is a savior and his work is complete. He has done the will of God for his people. He has done the will of God to completely save us from our sin. We need only to recognize that and to rest in him. And that's not so easy to do. There we can serve God out of gratitude rather than guilt. In Christ, the more we see his purity and holiness, the more we see his love and grace. No longer need we look for cover and to put ourselves at a distance from God and to have go-betweens between us and God. By Christ, you can come to him in loving worship and service. And Hebrews is going to go on to talk about that a lot. He has said it himself. He has come to do the will of God. Jesus said that. And he has done it. The will of God concerning what, doing what needed to be done to make us right with God. For those who trust in him, there is no more sacrifice for sin. No more need to appease God's wrath. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He has done the will of God, all that God requires, and he has done it for us. Take heart, Christian. Take heart and do not labor under a yoke of bondage. Please stand. O oh, Heavenly Father, that we might trust in you and in your Son and all that you have done. Why would we go on with such provision, with such a testimony, with the Son of God from heaven testifying 
that he came to do what all the sacrifices represent, that he came to do the will of God, that he came to reconcile us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to find rest in Jesus Christ, who said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. O oh Lord, here is the one who came for the very purpose of saving wretched sinners, not just sinners, but wretched sinners. And he went to a wretched cross and bore great shame and, and suffering in order to accomplish that. And his labor was not in vain. He did all that was required. And you have accepted and acknowledged that he has done all that is required. We pray that we wouldn't keep going back, that we wouldn't keep gravitating to the Old Testament kind of worship that is no more. Lord, help us to see that we are free that we are liberated in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. We have new life. We have hope. And yes, Lord, we still labor with this body of sin, this body of death. The Apostle Paul spoke about that. Who will deliver me? But he knew that you would. He knew that he was pardoned. He knew that he was restored. And he looked forward to the time when all the groaning that we still have in this world where we have affliction, where we have bodily infirmities, where we have death, where we have sorrows, where we have many trials that are all a part of your work in us to, to sanctify us and to prepare us for glory. But Father, the forgiveness is already done if we are in Jesus Christ. We have full righteousness, full justification, and we need not hide ourselves and keep going back as if there was no provision that had been fulfilled for us. Oh, Father, please, please work, work in the, your people, Lord, all over the world. This is a, a perennial problem, and it keeps on being present, Lord. It keeps on showing up. And we pray, Lord, set your people free. Give them joy in Jesus Christ and his saving work. Pour out your spirit upon your church that we might have strong faith and consolation in the one who has fulfilled all that you require. Lord, give us a passion for these things. Give us a passion to declare these things to the nations, for this is the gospel of grace. May we not be strangers to it. May we not go on with a, a veil of, of blindness and confusion, but may we find rest for our souls. We ask this, O oh Lord, in the name of the one that we praise, the one who came, the one who lived, the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who reigns, the one who intercedes, the one who is coming again. In his name, we ask this. Amen. Please be seated and let's come to the Lord's table. So we have this Savior that I have proclaimed to you today. The blessing today is, is very, very simple. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.